to the Connect Kindness Podcast, where we connect people with organizations to inspire kindness. I'm your host, Crystal Aziz, and I'm joined by my co-host, Tim Evans. Thank you so much for joining us on the Connect Kindness Podcast. It's a new year. It's 2019. And we're super excited because the first interview of the year went to Lisa Wooling with Friends of Texas Wildlife. Yeah, we had a great interview with Lisa and uh, we learned all about Friends of Texas Wildlife, how it was founded, which was actually volunteers coming together to form an organization. They have been doing great things uh, for wildlife in Texas for the past 25 years. So without further ado, this is our interview with Lisa Wooling of the Friends of Texas Wildlife. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us on the Connect Kindness podcast today. Tim and I are eager. We are excited to have you on the podcast with us. And I wanted to start off by allowing you a chance to talk about Friends of Texas Wildlife and also how it was founded. Oh, thank you so much for having us. Our group was actually officially founded in 1993. It was kind of a bunch of volunteers that were already rehabbing on their own and they decided to kind of band together to form a group just so that that would help with supporting each other and with fundraising and um, so actually 2018 was our 25th anniversary of uh, since we were officially founded as a nonprofit. so uh, it was just a bunch of ragtag rehabilitators who decided to band together and kind of has grown from there and evolved into what we are today. That's awesome. Congratulations also on achieving 25 years. That's that's an amazing. That's amazing. How did you personally get involved with the organization? I actually was rehabbing on my own. I was training. um, I had a girl who was mentoring me locally who was a licensed rehabber. That's how a lot of us kind of get started. You know, I found a baby bird and took it to a local rehabber and she said, gee, you seem like you have an interest in this. Would you like to learn? And I said, sure. And so I had kind of been learning and working with her and um, she actually had to move out of the area and around the same time I saw an article in the local newspaper about Friends of Texas Wildlife that they were looking for more volunteers so it's kind of one of those things I feel like it came together at the time it was supposed to come together for me to get introduced to this new group of people so that was probably about 10 or 12 years ago that um, I found Friends of Texas Wildlife and just at the time I needed a new group to fit in they were looking for people so it all kind of came together that way that's awesome yeah i am a huge lover of animals as well as i have two boys and i swear my oldest he would he would bring home uh, an animal every single day if he could (laughs) he absolutely loves animals. yeah we can we can all relate to that (laughs) (laughs) well i'm interested um how do you find uh the animals that you help Usually it's just people from the general public that either, you know, they find something in their yard or their kids will find something if they're out playing. A lot of times people's dogs and cats will find things and and bring it to them. (laughs) Um, So it's just kind of happenstance that people from the public will come upon something and and find an animal. And then that's typically when they find us is, is when they have a need. And, you know, they'll look up online to find out what to do with with wildlife and that's when our name will pop up so it's usually just people from the general public will come across something and get in touch with us that's great that's great um just curious how many animals would you say that you guys helped last year it's a about 2,000 to 2,500 every year and and in addition to the general public we do also have some pretty good working relationships with local animal control and with the game wardens 
So some of the animals, or sometimes even U.S. Fish and Wildlife, if it's in the case of the federally protected birds. So we have pretty good working relationships with those groups. And so if they come upon animals, they will oftentimes bring them into us as well. That's fantastic. That is a lot, a lot of animals that you guys helped uh, in, in the Houston area. So that is amazing. Uh, I'm just curious, are there any rules or anything like that to where if you find an animal, something that you that you shouldn't do or should do? Typically, about 99% of anything that has fur or feathers is going to fall under some kind of protection, whether it's um, state protection or federal protection. And so it's, it's not legal for members of the general public to try and raise animals or keep animals, which most people don't want to. They you know, they know they need to get it to somebody for help. Mm-hmm. So typically what we tell people, if, if they find something and they can't get a hold of somebody right away, it's after hours or it's over a weekend when somebody you know might not be available, it's typically just if they find something to keep the animal warm and quiet, you know, not handle it. Um, of course, there is always a risk, you know, of, of somebody getting bit or scratched, and we don't want that. It's also stressful for the animal. So typically, we tell people just like an old T-shirt or, um, you know, old little blanket or something that they can keep the animal warm and quiet. It's usually best not to try and feed the animal or give the animal anything other than maybe a little shallow dish of water um, because improper feeding, if the animal is compromised, can actually do way more harm than good. So um, it's better just to kind of keep it warm and quiet until they can get it to a rehabber. If they feel like they absolutely need to do something, the best thing to use is children's Pedialyte or, um, you know, like a Gatorade or some, some sort of a rehydration solution like that is safe to warm that up in a little syringe and, and try and give the animal something to drink that way. But really, other than that, feeding can do more harm than good, so should not do that. Gotcha. That's great to know. That's great advice. I, I really think uh, now I know what to do in a situation like that. I never knew, especially living in Texas, you you never know what kind of animal you may run into. What counties do you guys actually serve? You said that, you know, you got to find each other locally and communities find each other locally. Where are you guys serving? What communities? Typically anything that's in, in Montgomery County or the surrounding areas, you know, we, we do, there are certain species, if they're rabies, vector species are supposed to stay within the county. So that can get a little bit tricky, but typically Typically, we will just take in anything if we're the closest help. And um, because there are no other rescue groups to our north or east or west, we take in from, you know, probably as far west as like College Station, pretty far to our north and east because there's really, um, there's a few individual rehabbers sprinkled here and there, but there's no wildlife centers. So we're pretty much if people call and we feel like we're the closest help, um, we'll take the animals in. Okay, great. I know that our Friends of Texas Wildlife uh, is a catch and release program. How long does it take for the animals to be completely uh, rehabilitated? Um, that can vary a great deal depending on whether the animal was injured or whether it was a baby when it came in. Most cases of an injured animal, you know, they can be pretty quick turnaround. Sometimes we get these little songbirds and if they've hit a window or something, they might just need a couple of days to recuperate <laughs> and they can go back out. But um, others are, are quite long-term. You know, when if we get in, for instance, baby raccoons or uh, baby great-horned owls, 
uh, they can stay with us for up to seven or eight months before they're old enough and ready to be released. So it, it varies greatly from species. So, you know, that's about the longest, though. If we get in babies, baby raccoons are about seven to eight months. Um, baby great horned owls, they, don't, they can't get released till they're about eight months old. So that's about the longest commitment that we would make for something that's still going to be released into the wild. Are there certain animals that you see more of? Probably number-wise, um, it's it's pretty even across the board. Everything goes in, in cycles. You know, right now we're in a, a slower cycle because it hasn't hit baby season yet, but baby squirrels will be coming in soon. They're born twice a year here as early as January, so we might be seeing some baby squirrels. Um, the, the big raptors, the eagles, and um, big owls are breeding already, so they probably have chicks in the nest, so we'll probably start hitting with babies really soon. Um, I guess the three species that we probably take in the highest numbers of would be squirrels, songbirds, and probably opossums would be the three that we do the most of. But we do a little bit of everything from little songbirds all the way up to fawns. Gotcha. Do you guys have any like animals that you just can't take care of? Like are deer part of those groups that come in? Uh, I know they're larger animals compared to everything else you were talking about. Do you guys see those kind of animals coming into your programs? We do have some that typically um, we don't have a facility that can handle them, but we'll try to assist the best we can with, with getting it stabilized and then getting it to a, a center that can accommodate it. We've gotten baby bobcats here and there, and, oh, wow. and we really don't have we don't have a holding facility for something like that or a coyote. Beavers and otters are very difficult because they're a long-term commitment and they need some sort of an aquatic habitat, which we do not have here. So those kinds of animals, if we get them in, typically we'll, we'll stabilize them and network with a center or an individual rehabber that has a setup that can take them. There's an individual rehabber up in uh, the Dallas area who just specializes in, in beavers and otters. And then there's, there's a center out in the San Antonio area that um, has a really nice bobcat facility. So we'll kind of network with some places like that. And I hope in the future that as we can continue to grow, it might be something we can add to our facility but it's just not something that we can handle at this time. On top of the 2,000 animals that you're already helping. so Right, right. Yeah, yeah I mean, so, you know, we, we would love to have a beaver and otter habitat, <laughs> but, you know, that, that's a bit past our uh, what we can afford to do at this point. So uh, maybe it's, you know, so it's on our wish list. <laughs> 2020, right? 2020. Yeah, <laughs> yeah maybe, for our, maybe for our 30th anniversary, we can pull that off. That's awesome. Um, a lot of people, you know, kind of bringing it back a little bit, a lot of people were affected by Hurricane Harvey. I'm curious to learn about how were the animals doing during this time. Can you share a story and how you guys were able to kind of help the wildlife on, especially after Hurricane Harvey? That was really kind of rough because, um, especially as the area continues to get more and more developed, a lot of the habitat that gets left for wildlife is floodplain, which is usually beautiful and perfect habitat. But when we get a flood, it, it you know really is rough on those animals, and there's not a lot of places for them to go. So we were getting um, our actual intake facility here stayed dry, but all of the roads leading to it were flooded. So we were not able to get to our intake center here. We had one of our volunteers with a big truck with a snorkel on it was able to get here and just check on the animals that were here. But we were kind of meeting people off-site. Um, we were networking through social media and through our phones here to try and get calls answered as quickly as we could. And we were just basically meeting people anywhere we could 
where they could get to and we could get to, whether that was a Kroger's parking lot or, you know, in a Walmart parking lot, just somewhere that people could get to. So we had about three or four different places where we were meeting people to still get animals taken in that needed help. Harvey hit right in the middle of baby squirrel season, which is in the fall as well as the spring. So there were probably hundreds of baby squirrels that were knocked out of nests. We got quite a few fawns in that had been washed away and there was really no way to reunite them with their moms at that point because we didn't know where they had come from initially or where to put them back. So we we did get quite a few um, fawns in that had been swimming until they could get to high ground. We were getting calls of people all over the place. You know, I've got three deer in my backyard. I don't know what to do. And it's like, well, you know, if you're high and dry at this point, the animals are just going to hang out there until they can get back to where they want to be. So pretty much anything that you would think of Um, You know, anything that lived in a burrow or underground or under people's decks, typically, you know, um, lots of baby skunks or or juvenile skunks, lots of opossums. The raccoons seem like they fared better because I think they're pretty good swimmers and climbers. But even even just some of the birds of prey were just down from stress. You know, they between the weather being so bad and not being able to hunt when the weather's that bad. So we did get um, quite a few hawks and owls in that were just, it's almost like they had post-traumatic stress, you know, so they needed some extra recuperation just to kind of get over that and some calories until we could get them back out when the weather cleared. In addition to trying to deal with the wildlife, we did have a lot of our volunteers whose personal properties were flooded. So, you know, we were we were trying to help people, you know, our own volunteers with that. We had a lot of people that were bringing us animals that, you know, God bless them. They were saying, oh, you know, my house is flooded, but at least I could save the squirrel. You know, everybody was kind of of the mindset that, you know, if they could just do some one small thing to help, you know, in a helpless situation, it kind of um, was nice to see people come together. And it was heartbreaking at the same time to hear some of those stories. You know, these people were suffering themselves, but they were taking the time to try and save this, you know, half drowned little animal that they had found because it made them feel like at least they did something, you know, and, and so it was it was quite an experience. Like I said, it was heartbreaking, but it also really restored your faith in how people can come together in a situation like that to help each other. Absolutely. It, it was. I mean, it was devastation in the area, but also, like you said, it was amazing to see everybody come together in the Houston area so right um, yeah it was it was really heartwarming yeah for sure you know over the 25 years 25 plus years um, that your organization has has been around I'm sure there's been the evolution um, a lot of things have have, have evolved uh, I'm just curious as an organization what would you say is your biggest need for 2019? Well, yeah, we, we have had a huge evolution. I mean, we, we were all just a group of home-based rehabbers mm-hmm. for quite a long time, and we have actually only had this physical location since 2011. So nice to have a home that we can tell people to come to. And, you know, there's always kind of something around our intake center. We've, we've expanded and grown as we've had the funding to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that we feel very strongly about, in addition to helping the animals, is um, education. We do a lot of education programs, schools and scouts and the general public. So we we have been able in the last few years to add a separate building that is dedicated just to education. So fundraising is, is always a big part of whatever we do just to kind of 
keep things like that, keep programs like that running, supporting the animals that we're currently caring for and taking care of, because um, we're, as a nonprofit and, and according to our licenses, we're not allowed to charge anything. You know, we can't say, oh, we'll take the baby squirrel for $25. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're not allowed to charge. So strictly are able to do what we do through fundraising and donations. So that's a big part of it. You know, any fundraising or donations that we get can help us to continue to grow this facility and add more things. Like we were talking about other facilities for different animals. We spend about $8,000 every year just on the formulas that we order to feed the orphan babies that we take in. Um, We go through about probably $10,000 worth of mice every year feeding all the birds of prey that come in. And so there's, you know, there's just a lot of fundraising and, and, and that has to go to keep the group going. And in, in addition to just, you know, fundraising and, and donations when animals come in, people can also support us through um, share programs like they have with Kroger, the Kroger Community Awards or Amazon Smile. Um, you know, those things that people can help us while they shop if they don't feel comfortable donating or they, they're not able to, they can support us that way. They can always support us if they see on one of our, you know, Facebook or on um, our website if we're having an event, you know, come on out and, and support us at one of our events. That's all of the events that we do are geared toward either education or fundraising. So you know, you're going to learn something and help us out at the same time if, if you're able to do that. We always can use volunteers. We are an all-volunteer organization, and that could be anything from hands-on with rehabbing to helping with fundraising or helping at the intake center here. Another thing that we're always looking for is release spots. You know, these are a lot of animals that we raise every year and um, they have to go back somewhere. You know, we certainly want to release them where we feel like they're going to be relatively safe and they're not going to be a nuisance. You know, we're not going to go release a litter of raccoons in a subdivision where they're going to be (laughs) causing problems. So, you know, we always can use release spots. So if people have any kind of acreage or, you know, even a deer lease, if they're, you know, not using it the rest of the year and we could release other critters there, we always are in need of, of good release spots. So that's another way that people can help us out if they're able. I'm curious for for someone that that you know is not in the Houston area, but maybe they feel a calling to to help you know rehabilitate animals. What advice would you give to somebody um, to get started in doing that? Usually, the best thing they can do is to look on. Um, you know, if they're in Texas, they can always go on Texas Parks and Wildlife website, and um, they actually list rehabilitators by county. So, you know, you could find somebody who's close by to you. Um, probably 99% of us who are doing this have done it by being mentored by somebody else. Um, and so if you can find a, a rehabber or if you're lucky enough to have um, a rehab center in your area, you know, that's always the single best way to learn. Um, if they happen to be in another state, probably the same thing, go on your Parks and Wildlife website and do a search for wildlife rehabilitators. And that's typically the, the best and, and fastest way to get involved and to learn how to do it is to be mentored by somebody who's already doing it. And everybody loves sharing that kind of knowledge because that's how we all learn. Absolutely. Of course, of course. I think the coolest thing about your entire program is just 
having those home-based volunteers. You're, so you're telling me I can help an animal, I can bring it home, you're going to mentor me, you're going to tell me how to, you know, take care of this animal, and then I could do it again for another animal. I think that is awesome, and that is something that's going to continue to grow your organization more and more, especially over the years. So for a listener that did want to get involved with that, how does that program work? How can you become a home-based volunteer? Uh, usually we just, we have orientations um, about every month. So if anybody's interested in volunteering in any kind of capacity, um, they can just go on our website, fill out the volunteer information, and then we would have them come to an orientation. And at the orientation, we explain all the different areas that would be available for volunteering. You know, some people want to be hands-on with the animals. Some people can't. You know, maybe they live in an apartment or something, and that's not going to work for them. But we just would kind of go over briefly what would be involved. And then once people decide that they think they would be interested in learning to rehab, um, volunteering at the intake center is, is always a good way to be exposed to some of the different animals and see what particular species people might be interested in. And then we just kind of do periodic training, you know, on, on different species. So we'll, we'll be starting to train some of our people who have expressed interest. We're going to be doing some training on how to care for baby squirrels. And so it kind of just goes that way. Um, you know, squirrels are are not a difficult species to start with. We always jokingly call them good starter animals because they're they're pretty adaptable. And so some of our new people, if they might want to try to get their feet wet, um, you know, might take a, two or three little baby squirrels and see how that goes. And generally what happens is once, once people start taking animals, they want everything. It's like, okay, I did squirrels. Now I want to try baby raccoons or, you know, I want to try baby owls. And it kind of grows from there. But most of our rehabbers, tend to specialize in anything from like one to three species because it's just it gets kind of difficult to have you know facilities or and food and everything that you could do anything so um, a lot of our volunteers will tend to kind of specialize like we have some people who only like to do opossums or some people that only like to do squirrels or um, so we kind of you know people just kind of tend to pick what they have what they like what works with their schedule and um, you know that we kind of go from there Awesome. That's great. Lisa, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure interviewing you today and, and learning more about uh, Friends of Texas Wildlife. For listeners that want to get in touch with you guys, uh, where can they follow you on social media? Do you have any events coming up? Well, as I guess uh, let everyone know your website as well. Sure. Um, we appreciate the opportunity to talk to you and your listeners. Um, we do have a website, which is just um, friendsoftexaswildlife.org or ftwl.org either way will get you there facebook is probably the shows and and highlights most of the animals that we take care of we do post a lot of pictures and and stories and events on there and that's um saving texas wildlife is our facebook page we're also on twitter and instagram and i do um a monthly article for DocLine magazine. If anybody gets that in their area, we do a monthly just kind of educational um, article in DocLine. So the other thing that people might want to keep in mind, um, people always ask us if we are open to the public for tours or um, you know, if they can come and visit our facility, uh, our, our intake center is actually not allowed to be open to the public because of the way the licensing works and the permits. 
animals that are in rehabilitative care, we can't show them to people. You know, they don't want them exposed to, to people, which makes sense. You know, we don't want wild animals imprinting on people. But our education center is open on the second Saturday of every month. So people can kind of look for that on Facebook or on our website for more information about that if they're interested in coming to look. Um, some of our educational animals are out there. We, we do have some animals that are non-releasable due to injuries. Um, and so, you know, we've, we'll use those for educational purposes. And so on our second Saturday, people can come and meet some of the animals that way. Also, if we do offsite events or educational events, those animals would be there as well. We have some owls and a couple hawks and uh, an opossum and some turtles. And so uh, that is a way that people can safely interact and, and get to see some of the animals a little bit closer up. That's great. I love right. turtles, so I think you won me over by just saying that. <laughs> <laughs> so you'll both be here next second Saturday yep, so yep. you can meet some owls. <laughs> there you go. All right, there you have it. Friends of Texas Wildlife. Lisa, thank you so much. Everybody, please go follow them on Facebook to get all the latest updates. It's been a pleasure, Lisa. Thank you. Okay, thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to the Connect Kindness podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at ShareGiveDo. And please remember, the world is changed by your example, not by your opinion.